Well, welcome to Sojourn. If you're like me, uh, when you tell people that you go to Sojourn or about Sojourn, they normally say, well, what's that? <laughs> we are a church. Uh, we are formed by the gospel and sent and fueled by that same gospel. We actually put the definition up outside so that everyone would know that we're, we're sojourners. And what we mean by that, not just what's on the board out there, but also that, that as a, a group, a community, a people gathered around the centrality of, of God and His Word, that we are to be sending and sent, but never settled. So that's where we're trying to capture in the word sojourn. And as sojourners who are sending and being sent, we need God's Word to fuel us on our way. So each week, we turn to God's Word. This week we are in the book of Mark as we continue through the series in, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 3. And I'll start reading from God's Word in verse 7. And Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonegris, that is, sons of thunder. It's a tough one. We'll go with sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Would you pray this prayer along with me? May the truth that is in Jesus illuminate in me all that is dark, establish in me all that is wavering, comfort in me all that is wretched, and accomplish in me all that is of thy goodness, and glorify in me the name of Jesus. Amen. The Son of God in the Gospel of Mark has been showing us this kingdom authority in His life and ministry so far. So He passed through the waters of Jordan, uh, taking on almost in a sense symbolically the sins of the people and passing through unscathed, goes out into the wilderness and reigns and rules there. And then He goes and announces the kingdom of God, that it's at hand, that it's near in His person, in His working. He goes and he teaches with authority. He, he heals those who have diseases. He casts out unclean spirits. He even confronts the controlling powers of the day, both in unclean spirits and in the Pharisees. And in all of this, we see the authority of the Son of God. In the face of opposition, Jesus is undeterred. And despite the opposition from, from maybe some those of the religious elite or unclean spirits, we see Jesus continue to do his work and continue on with his mission. And in Mark's 
fast-paced gospel, these stories start to roll together, and what they're doing over and over again is just amassing evidence of Jesus as the Son of God who has authority over all things. And, and Mark just continues to story after story, pummel readers with this great amount of evidence that will say, Jesus is who I said he was in the beginning, that this is the gospel of the Son of God, and I want you to know it. And in verses 7 through 12, we, we get to see a story that adds weight to that, that puts all of their force to that body of work, that Jesus is the Son of God. It even adds affirmations from some that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in, in chapter 3, verse 7, after Jesus has been in a few stuffy synagogues, he goes and withdraws with his disciples to the sea, gets some fresh air outside of the, the kind of toxic air that he had breathed with the, the Pharisees in the synagogue. And here's what he does. He has a large following at this time. He withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And this is a, a large crowd. I mean, you can see on this map, I've kind of given us a layout of the land. I think it breaks it up well. You see Judea, and you can't even see Idumea. It's, it's south of Judea there. So it goes south of Jerusalem is an area, and then Samaria and Galilee above that. Across the Jordan, it would be on the far side from opposite of Jerusalem. And, and Tyre and Sidon are even further north. Jesus' fame is spreading, and it's going over a large amount of area very, very quickly. The impact of his ministry has this wide reach, even in some areas that are full of Gentiles, or maybe even we could say predominantly Gentile, Tyre and Sidon, and some of these places are not only have Gentiles in their midst, but are predominantly Gentile, and those are some areas where Jesus' ministry already is having an impact and has a reach there. So here, this huge crowd, this great amount of people are coming to Jesus. And where the Pharisees came to Jesus, we saw this in chapter 3, verse 2, they, they came to watch him, to accuse him. This crowd comes for a dis, different reason. It says in verse 8, when they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. We know from verse 9 and 10 that there are also some of them are coming to be healed. So here's what's going on around Jesus' life so far. In chapter 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, that he was one who teaches with authority. They were amazed, verse, chapter 1, verse 27, that the spirits obey his voice, that they do what he tells them to do. In chapter 2, verse 12, as he heals the paralytic and says to him, your sins are forgiven, they're amazed at all that he's doing. And so in other words, everything that he does, the crowds come around and they look on with astonishment, and that leads to his fame growing and widening throughout the region. They press into houses to hear him teach, to see him heal. They crowd synagogues, some to see whether he'll heal on the Sabbath, some to be healed, some to just take in the spectacle that is Jesus. They want to see him. They want to know his miracles. Some still come to be healed. Verse 9 and 10 says that he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. The Pharisees, the religious establishment, are, are out plotting his murder, his death, to destroy Jesus is their goal, while others are plotting how to just to touch him, get close to him, so that he might heal them. And Jesus, in his kindness, is actually making a way for them. He instructs his disciples so that, like, okay, let's figure out a way. If I'm going to have this many people come, like, let's not get crushed. Like, let's figure out a way to, to make room so that they can get close to me, so that they can hear my teaching, so that I might be able to 
heal their diseases. He makes provision for those so that he could be with them, so that he could do his work among them. And Mark doesn't give specifics here. Mark is very fast-paced. He just gets at the heart of what he wants to do, and he doesn't waste time with any details that we would like to know. He doesn't give us how many he healed. We don't even know. It says diseases. We don't know which ones. Common cold, smallpox. We, We don't know. Just diseases. What kind? We don't know. How many? We don't know. He doesn't give specifics. But I love what he does get specific on. Look in verse 11. It says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. The Pharisees questioned Jesus. Who is this man? That he could say stuff about the Sabbath. That he could say that you are forgiven of your sins. No one can do that, right? That he could tell a paralytic to get up and walk. That he could heal on the Sabbath. Who is this? That's their question. The unclean spirits don't have that question. They see Jesus and they fall down and they declare, You are the Son of God. Jesus is affirmed in who he is, not by the religious in the synagogue, That's not where he's recognized most, but by the spirits in the wilderness. Even even though these spirits correctly identify Jesus, and we could say, well, in, in comparison to the Pharisees, it seems like they're in good standing, we know that their knowledge of him and his real identity is useless. In James chapter 2, we're reminded of this kind of faith. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They shudder. Here we're seeing the demons believe and they're shuddering. Knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, accepting that is true about Jesus, is not the same as genuine faith in Jesus. Not the same as saving faith in Jesus. If knowing who Jesus is doesn't lead to trust in Jesus, love for Jesus, worship of Jesus, obedience to Jesus, then the, then the faith we have is the faith of demons. Demons know that Jesus is the Son of God, and they shudder at that fact. It leads them in this passage to fall down before him, not in worship of him, but in subjection to him as the superior. One author says it rightly, I think, when he says that the cry of the demons was a cry of despair, not of faith. It was uttered with malevolence and antagonism, not joy and loyalty. Their type of faith which is a faith that is obviously not salvific, it doesn't save, is a prevalent faith. We need to be wary of it. In a very churched place where Jesus is known, this is a specific thing that we need to examine in our own lives because it's easy to give assent to Jesus as the Son of God. It's easy to have the right knowledge of Jesus But to not have real faith in Jesus, saving faith in Jesus. We can pray before meals, we can be in church every week, we can be moral people, we can know the Christmas story and not have saving faith. We can know and accept true and right things about Jesus. We can even fall down and confess him as the son of God and not love him. One pastor says it this way, that the devil himself has many right thoughts about God. My guess is that the devil on some doctrines is more orthodox than us, more correct than we are. But none of these doctrines in the mind of the devil gives rise to any love for God, any worship of God, any delight in God. And the reason he points those out is because that's what genuine faith does. 
Genuine faith leads to this love for God, delight in God, worship of God, trust in God, obedience to God. Our faith, if it's to be saving, has to exceed the faith of the demons who know Jesus as the Son of God, fall down and shudder, but don't know Him in a saving way. If our faith doesn't lead us to cry out, you're the Son of God, in joyful submission, in love and worship of the Son of God, then we have possibly the faith of demons need to examine our faith. The good news is this, that if your faith is only the faith of demons right now at this point, that doesn't put you outside Jesus' invitation here. And say, well, you have the faith of demons, so you're condemned, right? Even now as we examine this and we're given the privilege of opening God's word and being able to examine it with one another, that that alone is God's mercy and his invitation to come and know him for real. To love him and to worship him, to live life with him. Jesus came for the sick. He came for sinners. Recognize if your faith is not saving faith that you're a sinner. But you have a physician who came to you. He wants you. He wants to make you well. Seeing your faith as the faith of demons provides an opportunity to run to Jesus. To fall down in joyful submission and say, you're the son of God. That's what the demons do, not savingly. We need to be wary lest we fall into the same. They cry out. They fall down before Jesus. Still in opposition. And here's what Jesus does to them. Verse 12. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. I I think that after the, the stuffy synagogue where the Pharisees are just looking to trap him... They see what he does and they they go and plot his murder on the Sabbath. Like after seeing that, not recognize him as the son of God. This might be a refreshing thing that the, the unclean spirits do here. Like they're declaring and affirming what the religious should already know and, and are trying to work against. And so maybe it should be like, go preach, unclean spirits. Go tell them that I'm the son of God. They need to know this. But that's not what Jesus does. He orders them not to make him known. It's not that he doesn't want to be known. He wants to be known. That's why he came. But he doesn't want to be made known by them on their terms. Obviously, unclean spirits don't have, what would we say, sincere desires there to build up the work of Christ. Jesus wants to be known on his own terms. And in fact, I think that he wants to be known as the Son of God, but as the Son of God in light of all that he does. So it's as if he's, he's not quite ready for that to be the full thing that they know about him yet because they're going to see it wrongly. They're not going to see him as the son of God in light of his death. Sons of God don't come to die. And so he wants to wait. <laughs> like, let's, let's let this be worked out on my terms. He wants them to identify him rightly, but he wants to be made known and identified through his living, through his dying. So he silenced the spirits. He doesn't want the son of God to be, he doesn't want to be known as the son of God apart from life and death. From the cross, he wants that to be an essential part of him as the Son of God. And look at his authority on display here. The unclean spirits come to them and they fall down before him in subjection to him. And he tells them what to do. Over and over again, we see Jesus' authority. Right? There's not like a, a wrestling here of Jesus and the unclean spirits. We'll see who's going to win this cage match. There's no battle here. Like there's, there's, there's no... We're close to equal. There's no even we're close to equal. There's Jesus commands and they obey. There's one authority in this whole story. And the unclean spirits are not it. There's no struggle with an equal power. We're living in a place where Jesus reigns. And we see his, his life and his ministry. We see it displayed over and over again. Here's what's going on. Jesus is the one who has all authority. He is the king who reigns. 
And he's displaying it as he orders these unclean spirits to not make him known. He will make himself known, and he is. But he also makes himself known to some close disciples who will then, in turn, make him known. And that's where we turn in verse 13. It says that he went up on a mountain. Now, that phrase alone should alert us to something important going on. If you know the scriptures well, it seems like important things, big things in the people of God, turning points, come from mountains. Right? They go up on a mountain and something happens. And so it can, given the context, alert us to something important going on. I think that, that is what Mark is doing here. Going up on a mountain recalls things like Abraham and Isaac, right? He goes up on a mountain to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, and God provides a substitute. It's something big was going on there. Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the, the law from God. In other words, like here's the people assembled before this mountain, and I'm going to give you something so that you might live as my people. Like something big was going on. He takes them on a mountain before they go into the promised land. He says, there's blessings over here, there's curses over here. Right, the mountain, they're like big experiences. Why they call them mountaintop experiences? Big experience going on here. And the story of, that Luke gives of this same uh, appointing of these apostles, Luke says that he goes up on the mountain, he prays all night. And then he calls his disciples. In other words, this is something big is going on. So in verse 13, he goes up on a mountain and he calls to him those he desired, and they came to him. Again, authority. <laughs> He calls, they respond. Jesus initiates, he goes after, he loves, he pursues, he goes after these people, he calls them to himself. It's his working that's being put on display. It's his initiative. It's not so much that there's 12 people really clamoring to be his disciples, so much as it is Jesus really wants people and he goes after them and he calls them to himself. Jesus desires them. And in verse 14, it says that he appointed 12, who he named apostles. So that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So Jesus' authority here, he calls, they respond. Jesus is doing here. He calls, he desires, he appoints. All those things are on display. But what he's doing here with these people, these disciples, is that he is forming something new. He's, he's calling a people. I, I love that, that, that God isn't calling indiv- an individual. Right? He always saves and he always works through a people plurality of people, like a multiple people, and he's doing that here. He's using a community. And that number 12 is a specific number. It recalls and should recall the 12 tribes of Israel. It lines up perfectly. There's, there's almost no other reason why 12 might be the number. Except for that God is doing something, and he's trying to kind of tune us into a little bit of what he's doing. This isn't a strange coincidence. He's signaling something. And I think what he's signaling is at least is, is the 12 tribes of people of Israel, that didn't go well. They couldn't save themselves. They were sinful. They needed a savior. But God wasn't done with, with a people. He wasn't done calling some to, his, to himself. And so it's as if he's restoring something that's been broken. He's healing something that has gone off. He's fixing it. He's renewing it. He's building a a new kingdom people. And these 12 are going to be foundational to that new community, that new people of the kingdom. And so he calls 12, kind of taking us back to those 12 tribes. And Mark gives us two reasons for appointing the 12. Verse 14, two reasons. He appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. With him. In other words, Jesus wants real relationship. He wants people. Now, to be fully human, and Jesus is fully human, 
is to desire relationship with other people. God says, before there's sin in the world, like it's not good for man to be alone. We're made for relationship. We're made for living life with others. Jesus desires this. He desires relationship. And then he says that he calls them to himself and he names them apostles. So he's, he's making them his disciples so that he would, so they might be with him. He wants relationship. So discipleship for Jesus takes place in real relationships with people that he loves and desires. He wants companions, friendship. He doesn't just see people and call these people as a means to an end. Like, I got to get this gospel of the kingdom out, so let's get 12 and let's do that. That's there, but not apart from him being in relationship with them, to be with them. He wants them. He wants relationship. Discipleship with Jesus is relationship with Jesus. One author says it this way, the discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. Jesus first calls them into relationship. He first calls them to himself, to be with him. Now, likely you've heard of the story of Mary and Martha, these sisters in the book of Luke. We're told the story of them when Jesus comes to their house. And they're busy. And here's what we read about them in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary in discipleship. There's a better portion Not that there's not two good portions here, but there's a better portion, and that is to be with Jesus. It's relationship before it's anything else. And it's easy to look at a story like that and say, like, we need to be more like Mary. And that's true, we do. But why do we get the chance to say that? That's only possible because that's what Jesus actually wants. He actually wants relationship with us first. He wants us to be with him first. It's not that we should just learn to sit at Jesus' feet. He wants relationship with us. He wants us to be with him. He not only desires people to be with him on earth, you could argue that he desires people to be with him eternally. That's why he came. He's eternally interested in relationships with his creatures, his people. He doesn't just want to use us. He wants to be with us. So when Jesus calls us to follow me, we can know that that call is not a cold call from a lecturer. It's not a task-oriented call from a manager saying we need to get something done. It's a loving call from a friend, from an elder brother who would have us live life with him in relationship with him. It's a call to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to come to know him well. He wants relationship with us. One author says this, to be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. Do you know that as true in your life? That to be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of your discipleship. 
It's not all the things you don't know and how to do or trying to figure out how to navigate all the difficulties of life. That's there too. The most profound mystery is being in relationship with Jesus. It's kingdom living on this earth, here and now. See, viewing discipleship as this task only or even task first is to miss the heart of the Son of God. It's to be off a bit. This is the one who came to save sinners. He came for us to rescue us from our sin. He wants us. It's a who before it's a what. And I think that's a needed corrective for us. It's easy for us to be task-oriented. It's easy for us to talk discipleship and get us into the room and say, let's talk strategy before we talk about being with Jesus. But who and what is going to keep us going when we are sent on the task? There's a task here. We'll get to that. That's another reason that they're called. But who or what's going to keep us going on that task? What would we point people to? To carry out the strategy and the mission that Jesus has given to us. It ought to be what the Great Commission says to us, right? It says, all authority has been given over to me, so go and make disciples. And what's the promise? I will be with you always. You want to fuel Great Commission living, we're going to need to know that Jesus is the one who has all authority and that he's with us. We're going to need to be with him. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. He's with us. In being sent, there's going to be all sorts of trouble. And the best thing we can do in the midst of that is not necessarily to talk strategy, although we need to do that. Not to figure out the task a little bit more clearly, although we need to do that too. It's that we need to know the very presence of Jesus with us. And we have to cultivate this in our lives as his disciples. This desire and love of being with Jesus. He's certainly trying to cultivate it with us. He wants to be with us in relationship. My guess is that we're likely at our worst in the task and the mission that he sends us on, that he gives to us when we're not cultivating life with him. If being with him isn't our first joy, then the task that we're given is going to suffer. Our message is going to suffer, right? What's our message? Be reconciled to God. We're saying that the gift that we are offering, that we are telling, the good news we're saying is that you can have God. Be reconciled to God. Have relationship with God. And if we're not desiring God, then our mission is going to suffer. We're not going to be so joyful about the good news that you can be with God if we're not being with God and enjoying that as the ultimate thing in our own lives. He's the gift. And here he calls disciples, and it just, Mark tells us, he wants to be with them. He wants them with him. And I don't think this is just instructive for our following of Jesus, but also for our discipleship of one another. We shouldn't view people, one another, as just a means to get something done. We should view one another as valuable, relational beings, people to live life with. We want to be with one another. We don't just want you to accomplish our end. Like, that's not what the church is. The church is a bunch of people called together in relationship to carry out this mission that Christ has given us. We are called together to say everything we owe, everything we have, we owe to Jesus. He's everything to all of us. And because he's that, because we love him and we want to adore him and live life with him, then we go together. So it's instructive even of how we disciple one another. We ought to value a who 
before what? We need to be relationship-driven, not task-driven first. There's tasks, but we do that in the context of relationship. Jesus wanted these 12 men to be with him. And I think understanding that first only helps us move to what's next, only helps us understand what's next. He, he wants them to be with him and to be sent. And the order doesn't diminish the task. It doesn't diminish what he's going to send them to do. It doesn't diminish the joy. It doesn't diminish the importance of being sent. I think it enhances it greatly to be with him and then to be sent. And we read in verse 14, that's exactly what he wants. He wanted them to be with him and he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. So that's the pattern. Be with him and be sent. And Jesus here is saying he's going to use who to carry on his mission? People. People that he's investing in, that he's saying are followers of mine. He, he could have done it a number of ways, right? I, I've seen, you know, we see some of his miracles. He heals without even saying, like he just thinks it and does like, spread the message that way, Jesus. Write it in the sky. And carry it out... Spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. Like, do that. Just open their mouth and let them, let them speak all over the world. It's not his plan. He calls people to be with him and to be sent. His plan is people. His plan is a community of people, actually. I think we could be more specific. That that is the plan A. That's how the mission goes forward, is a community of people who are followers of Jesus being sent by Jesus. And the 12 are going to be the guys that Jesus uses specifically and uniquely to broadcast the gospel to the ends of the earth. They are going to be the foundation of the church. They are going to have unique authority. They are being the ones, you can tell it lines up with Jesus' mission so far. He goes and he teaches and he casts out demons. Mark is saying the disciples are carrying that on. They have authority. They're going to go teach. They're going to cast out demons. They're continuing the ministry that Jesus has started. And so I think we could say that the 12 had a special role here, a foundational role. A unique authority in both their preaching and in their casting out of demons. You see, all disciples are called to be in relationship with Jesus. All disciples are called to spread his message. All disciples have power over spiritual powers. We read in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we know we have the victory won for us in Jesus, so we fight from victory. We know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We know those things are true. We also need to know that these 12 are unique in all these things. They're uniquely with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. That was a big deal. We're not eyewitnesses in the same way. So we can be with him, but not with him in the same way they were with him. They had a unique authority in their teaching and preaching. They're laying the foundation of the, of the church, the, the teachings from the prophets. They're carrying on and building on. Here's what the person and work of Jesus means for those who are living after him. They had a foundational preaching ministry. They also had a unique authority. So that we're like them and that we can be with Jesus, but not quite like them. We're like them and that we can spread the message, but not quite like them. We're like them and that we have power, but not quite like them. They have signs and authority with their ministry that maybe we don't have. Maybe we want to have. We'd love to be able to tell an unclean demon, just do whatever I want to do. Like, be silent? That'd be great. Give me that power. Sign me up for that. But it may not be real for all of us. It's not going to be the same way as it was for them. They have a foundational authority. The 12 that Jesus appoints signals that something different is going on with these 12. It's a new kingdom people. His ministry is going to start and go through them. In fact, Ephesians says it this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, says that the, these, these apostles were laying the foundation 
that the church, the household of God, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, as Jesus' followers, we aren't the foundation. That would be arrogant. We're not the foundation. We're built on the foundation. Our cornerstone is still Jesus. We get to take the work. We get to be part of the household of God. What a privilege, what a joy. But we're not the foundation. The work continues through us, but it's not founded through us. So here's what Jesus' disciples get. They get the privilege of not only being called to be with him, but we get the privilege of being called to be sent by him to carry on his work. And we get to follow in the footsteps of these 12 as we get to sit with Jesus broadcast and proclaim his gospel, do kingdom work where we know and proclaim the one who has authority over all other powers on this earth. We're not the 12, but we get to build on their work. They were foundational, but we're still pivotal in the mission of God because God is using people. That's how he's going to carry on his ministry. It's through people. We're it. We're the plan. And because of the importance of of their relationship with Jesus and their role before Jesus, Mark makes sure that we know, here's the 12, here's these names. It's a specific list. It's not every disciple, it's not everyone is called an apostle. There were 12. Verse 16. He appointed the 12, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. These were the sons of thunder. So initially he gives kind of these three that are... They form a, a somewhat of an inner circle with Jesus' life and ministry. They get to see some things that other, other disciples don't get to see. They get to take part in some things that others don't get to take part of. Simon, he's given this name, Cephas, Peter. He's the rock pointing to his eventual role that he'll have among the apostles as this one who is built upon. James and John are the sons of thunder. You'd like to think that that's their thunderous preaching, but I think it refers more to their hot temper. In Luke chapter 9, we read of them. In verse 54, they go to the city. And when they see the city, they say, Lord, do you, do you want us to tell fire to come down on heaven and consume them? Like It's just like a passing comment that we get about James and John. There's not a ton of information, but that's in there. And all of these show up in Mark, have shown up in Mark so far, but he gives more. All right, So we've got James and John. We've got Peter. 17, James, the son of Deputy. John, John the brother of James. These are the sons of thunder, 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed them. Now, right away, I think you could tell that this is a diverse group. That they call someone a zealot matters here, right? There's a zealot, someone who is, in other words, committed to even taking up arms against Rome, those who would lord over them at that time. We're willing to to take the sword to them. That's what a zealot would be committed to. You also have in their midst a tax collector that we already talked about. He's not committed to taking up arms against Rome. He's actually committed to working with Rome, collaborating with them. Let's take some of their money. I'll take a little bit. I'll give the rest to you. And let's move this thing forward. And so there's some animosity built into that relationship. These men, all of them, they come from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of means. Some of them like they had their own fishing company, probably made a decent amount of money. One's a tax collector, probably had some means. Other ones, we don't know. We don't know what kind of means they come from. Various means, various professions, various locations. So this is a diverse group. It's an ordinary group. These are normal people. You, remind, you remember in the, in the book of Acts that, uh, I think it's John and Peter speak, and the people are surprised. Like, 
Where'd they come from? They're uneducated common people. How do they have such learning and knowledge? We know they were with Jesus. But they were common, uneducated people. That's what the world would have thought of them. Many of these names are only seen here in this list, which is interesting. Not Judas. We see his name over and over again. Infamously, he's known. They can't almost, after, after he betrays Jesus, none of the, the writers of the Gospels, it seems, can get it out of their mind that he's the betrayer. He's almost always identified that way. He's the betrayer. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. But almost all of these guys, their lives, their contributions as foundational to the household of God are obscure, ambiguous, unknown. There's a few that we know quite a bit about. Not many of them, though. Jesus, he doesn't take on the world's A-team, those who have the most potential, the most drive, the most fire, the most ambition, the most notoriety, the most fame. He takes on the sick, the sinners, the ordinary, the no-names. And what does he do with them? And the book of Acts tells us the acts of the apostles, they turn the world upside down. The word spread forward through them, turning the world upside down. While at the same time, many of their specific contributions are completely unknown. What do we know about Thaddeus and what he did? Oh, we know Thomas was kind of a doubter, so we got him down. What about Simon the Zealot? His works, even probably his name, isn't known very widely outside of this list. But we know the one they followed. We know the one who they proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So while their contributions aren't specifically known, the word increased and multiplied through them. Indeed, it could be said of them that they turned the world upside down. This is the authority and the goodness of Jesus still on display. That he could take 12 guys and he could use them to spread his gospel to the ends of the world. He unites a diverse group of ordinary people and he uses them greatly for his glory and his fame. They're foundational, but the building that they were working on should reflect that same kind of idea. The building that they were working on is here. Uh, Look around. The, The household of God is the faces you see around you. The people who all will say that we're followers of Jesus, we're trusting fully in him, and we want to be with him and be sent. They were building up to us. So their work has been carried on to now. And as we look around at one another, this is the house of God. This is what they were building. They were the foundation, and here we are. We are the result of their work, of Jesus being the cornerstone, and him being with them and sending them out. Now here we are as his people, and as we look around, we can be reminded that Jesus' work and his authority is still ongoing, because here we are, a diverse group of people. Indeed, we even want to pray for more diversity so that we can more greatly reflect what we see God doing That he takes people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of professions, all sorts of means, all sorts of nationalities, and he brings them together because they're all saying, we just follow Jesus. And he unites them. And he takes a whole bunch of people that the world would say, like, I don't know, they don't really seem like they're worth much. No names. Don't lack, they lack ambition, drive. They're not out there making a name for He takes those kind of people that the world would look at and say, that's the scum of the earth. And he brings them together. And he starts using them. 
and somehow the, the world is turned upside down by their work as he works in and through them. And that's revealing not our authority, but the authority of the Son of God who promised, I have all authority. Go make disciples. I'll be with you. It'll be me that's displayed. It'll be my authority that's displayed. It'll be my kingdom that's coming. But you will be used. His unity in our diversity. His power in our normality. So that as we go, like they did, Jesus goes with us. Let's praise God for his authority, authority that can take a bunch of nobodies and use them greatly. That can unite a diverse amount of people, but all along the way will do it for the fame of his great name. Let's look around and let's ask for that to happen again in our midst. Would you bow in prayer with us? Jesus, we are humbled at the thought that the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth would desire to know us, would desire for us to be friends with you, with one another, on mission to make your great name known. God, that you would entrust to us such a task is just really beyond our minds. Lord, we are humbled at that thought, and we know, Father, that that task will not be carried out according to your intentions, unless, Lord, first we, we seek to know you through it. Lord, help us be a people who, who don't put the what before the who, Help us not be a church that loses our first love, God, because we're so caught up in, in the things that we should be doing. Lord, we know, as Dylan just preached, we know that those things are so important and they have to happen. But God, we need to know you. We need to take delight in you. We need to know the joy that fills us from walking with you and talking with you and worshiping you and gathering together to lift up your great name. Lord, we want to know you. And where we don't, God, forgive us. Where there may be some here this morning who have the faith of demons, as harsh as that may sound, and who are easing their consciences as they go throughout life because they have this knowledge that they feel is, is saving knowledge, but it's not. It's just knowledge. Lord, I pray that if there are those among us this morning that are in that position, Father, that your spirit would move on them, that they would see, God, that they need you desperately, that they need to know you desperately. And Lord, help us be a people on mission. God, you didn't save us just to bring us to heaven. Sure, it's something to look forward to. It's a great reward, but Father, you, you saved us to bring us to yourself and to unite with you in your mission to make your name known in this world. Father, you deserve the worship of every single person in this world. And it is our mission, Lord, to see that carried through. Lord, we are honored to be here this morning. We thank you that you have called us to yourself. 
we thank you that we can rest in your authority knowing that there is truly nothing to fear. Help us to live that way. Help us to look to one another for that encouragement. And ultimately, God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. You are truly the author and the perfecter of our faith, God. We depend on you fully and holy, Father, to accomplish your will in this world and in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.